This is Fresh Air. I'm David B. Cooley, professor of television studies at Rowan University in New Jersey, in for Terry Gross. Nobel Prize-winning novelist Kazuo Ishiguro is known for his books Remains of the Day and Never Let Me Go, both of which were adapted into popular films. His latest novel, Clara and the Sun, is now out in paperback. In reviewing it, our book critic, Maureen Corrigan, described Ishiguro as, quote, the master of slowly deepening our awareness of human failing, fragility, and the inevitability of death. All that, even as he deepens our awareness of what temporary magic it is to be alive in the first place, unquote. Clara and the Sun takes place sometime in the near future. Something has created a great disruption in society. Society is stratified. Privileged people are known as high-ranking, while people who have lost their jobs to very smart machines are known as substituted. The narrator of the book is a human-looking robot who is part of a class of robots designed with artificial intelligence to serve as friends to children and teenagers. It's a society where people are isolated from each other and children no longer go to school. They learn at home on their devices. We see the world through the eyes of this artificial friend, Clara, who narrates the novel as she learns about humans and the world around her. Kazuo Ishiguro was born in 1954 in Nagasaki, after it was decimated by the atomic bomb and then rebuilt. When he was five, he moved with his family to England, where he continues to live. Terry Gross spoke to him last year when Clara and the Sun was first published. Kazuo Ishiguro, welcome back to Fresh Air. It's been too long, so it's a pleasure to have you back. Does this book have a resonance that you didn't even expect it to have because of its release during the pandemic? Schools are closed, and in your novel, children don't go to school anymore. People are isolated from one another and are interacting through their computers. They're learning. Children are learning on their devices. Um, Is that something that... Did you make any tweaks after the pandemic? I mean, the book is new. You wouldn't have had a lot of time to make changes. No, no. If there are any reverberations, they're purely coincidental. You know, I'd finished the book before the pandemic. And I have to say, you know, it it took me completely by surprise. You know, I didn't know something on the scale was coming up. I, um, you know, I I couldn't have dreamt that, you know, something like this would happen. Um, Maybe in some other sense, you could say, you know, there's an underlying atmosphere um, uh, of kind of global crisis and um, things hitting society. I mean, we're talking about, um, in the novel, I'm talking about a society that is undergoing uh, profound changes and it doesn't quite know how to reorganize itself. I, I, you know, I have to say the narrator of your novel is the artificial friend, Clara, um, and who wouldn't want a friend as self-sacrificing and devoted as Clara is, someone who's programmed to learn everything they can about you and to please you? And honestly, I found Clara the most sympathetic character in the novel. I mean, she's, she's pure in a lot of ways, even though she's artificial. It shouldn't be that surprising, really, though, that um, um, an artificial creature could actually uh, solicit our sympathies as much as a, a human one. I mean, because after all, you know, characters in books are artificial. Yeah, I mean, we're making that kind of leap anyway. We're, when we read books and get you know, get weepy over the fate of some character, um, 
we're not we're not weeping over a real person. Uh, you know, we we've put ourselves into some kind of space where we're relating to kind of created beings, and we're at some level we're responding metaphorically because we think it it impinges in some metaphorical relationship to our real lives, I suppose. So I, I never thought it was going to actually be an intrinsic problem um, in terms of how my readers will feel in, in, because my main character was artificial. Clara is seeing the world and people in the world as an outsider. She, she's programmed to know the things that she knows, but she's learning about like human emotion and uh, she's learning about people and about the outside world from experience. Um, and the more experience she has, the more she understands about emotion and feelings. Um, so w what is the advantage to you as a writer, writing from the point of view of such an outsider who's apart from the world and is just kind of learning about it? I think I've always been drawn to, you know, throughout my career, to um, narrators who are in one way or the other quite a bit on the outside. But Clara was especially interesting for me because she doesn't bring any baggage with her. It's not like, you know, she has her value system, which kind of clashes with, with, with what she finds. She's like a tabula rasa at the beginning and she's quite childlike and very open. And so, so that was, you know, the, the, not, it's not just the, the, the way, the very restricted way in which she actually reads the world um that appealed to me i i wanted some of that childlike freshness and openness and naivety to survive all the way through the text in her i wanted her to remain like a very optimistic uh character who has a childlike faith in the presence of something good and protective in the world even as she learns all these other things um darker things about the human world uh, that she occupies do you want to explain what lifted means in your book, or would that be giving too much away? Oh, I, I don't mind. No, <laughs> um, the lifted is just just the expression that's used colloquially in in the book for for kids who have um, benefited from from gene editing. Uh, they've been enhanced by gene editing. And now, this is something that is already possible today. It's just that um, it, we we don't quite have the uh, the final technical tools. Uh, to do things, but I mean, we're almost there. I mean, the, the gene technology um, of uh, genetic technology, CRISPR, has actually completely revolutionized the field. And the uh, the two women who pioneered that just won the Nobel Prize, you know, December just passed. So I think this is something everyone would hear about much more. Um, but basically, yes, I mean, some kids um, receive treatment at some point early in their lives which enables them to be um, uh, more intelligent, quotes unquote, uh, perhaps uh, uh, more athletic, certainly less prone to various kinds of illnesses. And so that makes them in one, by, by one set of values that they're, they're, they're higher up the hierarchy. You know, they deserve better jobs, better, better education, more responsible positions in society. So we're having we're we're seeing a kind of caste system developing between kids who've been lifted and kids who haven't. And and in the in Clara and the Sun, I mean, we look at two teenagers who've grown up uh, very fond of each other, uh, and they're on 
uh, they're on either side of this divide. Clara is solar powered, but this solar powered battery or you know power source has a limited lifespan because she and other artificial friends need the sun to stay powered, to stay alive. She thinks of the sun as God and basically prays to it, asking for help, asking for interventions when she needs it, promising to do good things in return. Um, she doesn't understand that the sun isn't a god, that the sun doesn't live in the place where she sees it set every night, that the sun can be too harsh for human beings. And I assume that's in part because of the disappearing ozone layer. <laughs> that Also, she doesn't understand. Is this a way of expressing what you think of religion, that it's a kind of false premise in a way, that we create gods because we n- misunderstand our own creation, our own selves? I don't think I was trying to be critical of religion. I just thought Clara would reflect that aspect of humanity like she reflects other aspects of humanity. And this isn't something that she really learns, as you point out, from from humans. I mean, many other things she learns when she gets out into the human world and she becomes more and more human-like. But this is something that's there from the start because, because she's solar powered, I suppose. And it's perfectly logical for her to think you know, the sun is a source of all nourishment as far as she and her fellow AFs in the store are concerned. But then when she looks out the shop window into the street, it kind of makes sense to her that the sun is actually nourishing everybody. And that's the way it looks. You know, there are these big tall buildings and the sun is coming down in shafts and people are being nourished by the sun. You know, they're, they're happy when the sun comes out. And uh, so she holds on to this belief, I suppose, that the sun is the source of good things and that the sun is always watching over everybody. And when she needs to save the family that she lives with from impending heartbreak, the sun is naturally the person that she turns to. I mean, the sun is a person for her. Uh, and she goes to ask the sun's help. I, I mean, you, could, you could say this is like a religious instinct or whatever, but I mean, I, th- I found it very interesting to, to remove the usual kind of, um, the, the social context away, you know, take it away and just have it in this rather pure, naive artificial being that she too could actually repeat these patterns of belief and faith and that there should be something rather touching about it. I I, I thought that was quite interesting. Um, Your your father was an oceanographer. Am I right in saying that he was an engineer? Um, Yeah, I guess so. Yes. I mean, he he was like a, he was like an inventor. When when I was growing up, I didn't have any sense that like the machines in my life were invented by somebody. You know, like they existed and they were, you know, I didn't understand how they worked. But with your father having like created things, because I think one of the things or machines, I'm not sure what it was exactly that he created is in a museum in 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 England. Did you have a sense growing up that like technology is created by people, that people actually do that? that they're not things that just exist. <laughs> like People like your father create them. Yeah, I think I probably did. My father spent his whole life, his working life, just creating this one machine. He had a, a little department under him. That's that's why we were in Britain, because the British were funding his research. And he just made the one machine. It wasn't like, you know, 
it wasn't like Steve Jobs, you know, I'm going to make this and then I'm going to launch this. He just worked on this one machine that, that could predict storms at sea. And yeah, as you say, I mean, it, his, that machine is now not in just any museum. It's in the Science Museum in, in London. You know, the, the, that's the main big um, museum for science in, in London, in, in the United Kingdom. Um, and so I'm very proud of that. But yes, I, I grew up, um, I, although I grew up with this kind of, with, with a lot of science in the family, one of the things that I now kind of uh, regret and perhaps hold myself accountable for is the fact that I didn't take any advantage of it. I think there's this kind of severe barrier between the world of the humanities and the arts on the one on side and, and science on the other. And I was probably, you know, I, I kind of imbibed something of that climate. Maybe there's less of it in the United States, I don't know. And so, you know, I, I, I didn't I wasn't nearly as interested in science as I should have been. And and from a very early age, I I kind of siloed myself off in the world of books and music. And and I kind of thought science didn't have very much to do with me. And it's only you know, in old age, as I, as I am now, I realized how much the world of science and, and the rest of the world, you know, the world that you know, authors live in are, are, are just interconnected. Let's talk about your life. So you were born in Nagasaki in 54? Do I have that right? Yeah, yeah, November 1954. Okay, so, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's after the war, how much of Nagasaki was rebuilt? It was completely. It was completely rebuilt. Yeah. So I didn't have any any real direct sense of this place being, you know, where the atomic bomb fell. It was just this thing that adults sometimes mentioned. Did they sometimes mention it because they wanted to protect children like you from hearing about it? Well, I don't know what they did with each other when they were in their private moments. I mean, they must have lost so many people dear to them and so on. So I I imagine there were more serious, you know, earnest and and bereaved conversations, even then a decade later. But I, it wasn't even like a taboo thing. I remember, you know, um, when I was a child and, and all the time I was growing up in England, you know, my parents would just refer to it almost like a marker in time or something that happened in the way that people would refer to the war. Yeah, you know, uh, they were referred to to the Genshi Bakudan, you know, the atomic bomb. So, so you know, they might say that bridge was there, but you know, um, it it disappeared uh, during the atomic bomb. Uh, or they or they might be telling a story, a funny story about uh, a friend and an anecdote or something, and then it might just kind of end with, "Ah, oh, but she died during the atomic bomb." You know, and and it wasn't for me any different to the way I heard many of my uh, young English friends, you know, talk about the war. They would say, "Oh, you know, so and my, you know, my granddad you know, died in the war, or something like this." And so I didn't really think it was anything that special until um, when I was much older, you know, until I was about eight or nine, uh, and and I was living in England, and I kind of learnt almost in a schoolboy way by looking and I actually saw this in an encyclopedia that Nagasaki was you know one of only two places that had been atom bombed um, and I fe- I remember feeling a kind of pride and thinking oh I come from one of the only, one of only two places to suffer an atomic attack you know 
so it was a strange kind of relationship with the atom bomb. But of course, you know, I had parents who who thought about it in a certain way. My mother, particularly, you know, because she was there at the time. Well, your your mother survived the bomb, right? I think your father was working in China at the time. Yeah, he wasn't there, but my my mother was there. My all my mother's side of the family were there. How did your mother survive? Well, I mean, a lot of people survived. I mean, this is what what people don't kind of quite understand. I mean. We were talking about um, what, by even by the standards of the 1960s, were primitive, you know, atomic bombs. And so, um, unlike Hiroshima, um, you know, Nagasaki wasn't a direct hit. And so, you know, a lot of people. I mean, my my mother's house. I mean, she was a she was then a teenager living with her, you know, parental family. Um, a lot of kind of. It was just the kind of the blast, the, the kind of the air had actually kind of blown out things. But uh, it, you know they, they weren't that aware of it. And my mother, ironically, uh, because she'd been hit by a flying roof tile, um, she was resting at home to recover from her injury. And the rest of the family went to the stricken parts of the city. Um, and they saw, uh, I think, you know, horrible things. And... Um, and indeed, you know, her father died of uh, leukemia not long afterwards. And um, uh, but people didn't know about things like that then, you know. So a lot of my my images of of, of that time really come from my mother's perspective, as somebody who was almost like a spectator, but with this kind of big unspoken thing, when the family members would come back to the house after, well, helping. Uh, which actually in practice meant burning you know, heaps and heaps of bodies. Did your family um, describe things that they'd seen? Not to me, you know, you know, I, I was a boy, you know, I mean, I was a small boy, you know, in Nagasaki, you know, three years old, four years old and five years old. Um, it's only much later when I spoke to my, when, when I was, as an adult, I would, I would have conversations with my mother about her experience uh, of it, my my aunts, my uncles, uh, I I never heard them speak about it. Um, I would say, by and large, the Japanese attitude to the atomic bomb was to to, to say, look, I mean, it happened. Let's move on. You know, um, uh, and there's a surprising lack of bitterness towards the people who dropped the bombs on Japan. Uh, in fact, you know, people say it was this kind of they call it like, like a honeymoon occupation. I mean, the Japanese and the Americans seem to embrace each other in the years after the Second World War, um, and the Americans, uh, you know, poured huge amounts of money into Japan to build a, a, a powerful uh, ally against the huge kind of communist bloc of the world in, in China and the Soviet Union. Um, and so, very rapidly, I think um, memories of the war and, and the atomic bomb were left behind. Uh, so, you know, I haven't actually, you know, I have, so the the bomb hasn't actually in Nagasaki or the fact that I came from Nagasaki doesn't kind of loom over me in anything like the way that I, you know, people with a Jewish background or people who are Jewish have the Holocaust uh, haunting them through the generations. You know, I know many Jewish people who, it's very, it's very hard for them to get away from the shadow of the Holocaust. Um, I've never had that with the atomic bomb. It's something I gradually became aware of 
And, and even now it feels peculiarly distant from me. Kazuo Ishiguro speaking to Terry Gross last year. His novel, Clara and the Sun, is now out in paperback. We'll hear more of their interview after a break, and I'll review the new AMC drama, 61st Street, premiering this weekend. I'm David Cooley, and this is Fresh Air. Let's get back to Terry's interview with writer Kazuo Ishiguro from last year. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 2017. His novels include Remains of the Day and Never Let Me Go, both of which were adapted into films. His latest novel, Clara and the Sun, is now out in paperback. Our book critic, Maureen Corrigan, described it as a masterpiece. So when you came to England from Japan with your parents, because your father had a job that was supposed to be temporary as as a researcher, um, you moved to, I think it was Guildford, um, and it was. It sounds very rural. You were like five minutes away from a farm. There were hedgehogs around. The milk was delivered by a horse and wagon. Yeah, that's that's, that's all true. Yeah, mm-hmm. the farm was less than five minutes. The f- less the farm was less than five minutes. It, I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, it was just it was more or less right there. Mm. So you were used to like a, a rebuilt city, Nagasaki, and the new technology of the time. Did you feel like you were entering like a different world and a different era? It certainly felt like a different world, um, and it, it and it, it felt like a much quieter, less colorful world. I have to say. I mean, the children's toys were were very muted, you know, <laughs> the, uh, and rather austere. And this was 1960. Um, and what people in America perhaps wouldn't understand is that Britain had gone through a period of huge austerity after the Second World War. Uh, Britain had become a very, very poor place. There was rationing until the 1950s. You know, you know, people had to present tickets to just get, get their portion of food. Um, uh, and I think that that's something very hard for people in America to understand because the 1950s were you know, huge boom years in America. And and even compared to Japan, you know, it's like in 1960, uh, I would say, you know, England felt impoverished, you know, that there wasn't the variety of color and toys and, you know, excitement, particularly from a child's point of view, you know, but I really appreciated the, um, the rural countryside as it was. I mean, it, was, it wasn't real countryside, but I mean, you know, the, the town more or less ended where our house was. And uh, I grew up kind of, in these English fields and English trees. And my parents' friends were kind of very, very old-fashioned English types. You know? So you were a choir boy in church in England. Um, were your parents, did your parents um, practice any religion in Japan? Uh, no, they were, they, were, they were without religion. I, I remember at one point uh, when I was about 15 or something, uh, I asked um, what was our religion? Because I know that in in Japan you had to have an official religion on your birth certificate. Um, I think I think mainly to prove that you weren't Christian. It, it, it dates back to some some era when Christians were, you know, seen as a threat. Uh, so everyone has to have an official re- religion. And I, my mother had to actually go upstairs to look it up, and she and she said, you know, well, we're Buddhists, wow. <laughs> but I, I'll, I'll just go and tell you what kind of Buddhists. And she came back down and said, yes, we're all Zen Buddhists. So I thought, all right, <laughs> we all said Buddhists. Uh, 
but I mean, the attitude to religion was kind of like that, you know. Uh, and and I would say that's fairly typical of a of of, of a Japanese family. Um, that the role of religion, uh, with obviously with some exceptions, but by and large, you know, religion is is a is not the same same kind of thing it tends to be in the West. And um, most Japanese people would have a Shinto shrine and a Buddhist shrine in their in their homes, as 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 was the case in the house I. I, I spent the first five years of my life in. You have them both there, and they're you you decorate them at different for different festivals and things like that. They're they're not they don't seem to have a deeper religious identity attached to them. So you you grew up in England, um, which you know still has a monarchy. Um, you sp- and your new novel Clara and the Sun has so much to do with class structure like a very rigid form of class structure. Um, one of the jobs that you had when you were a young man was as a grouse beater. So I'm assuming, and this was for, was this for the queen mother? It was, yeah. Mm. But that was just like a, just for one summer. <laughs> but it just seems such a strange job, the idea of beating birds out of the heather so that the most privileged people in England can shoot them for sport. Yeah, but I I don't think it's something unique to England by any means. Um, anywhere where there's any kind of you know game shooting, I think I think that's a system. What did it feel like to participate in that? I, I, it doesn't it doesn't seem like your values. <laughs> I just did it as a as a very interesting experience for four weeks in the summer. Yeah, and it it introduced me to. I suppose a kind of a world I wouldn't normally see. You know, later that same year, I spent three months hitchhiking around North America, and I I was sleeping in missions and things like this, or on the, on the side of the road. So uh, it was a it was a year, it was a very formative year when I went from uh, meeting members of the British royal family and being employed by one of them to to being a hitchhiker. You know. Um, and 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 sleeping in kind of uh, in beds with kind of kind of um, uh, homeless people. Uh, it was very interesting. Let me reintroduce you here. If you're just joining us, my guest is Kazuo Ishiguro, and he has a new novel called Clara and the Sun. We'll be right back. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Teladoc. Ninety-two percent of people who have used Teladoc have seen an improvement in their mental health. Teladoc's online therapy offers access to licensed therapists right from your phone. Get help with anxiety, stress, depression, and more. Choose the right therapist for your needs with sessions wherever you're the most comfortable. Download the app or visit teladoc.com slash fresh air. When you were hitchhiking across America, um, did that coincide with the period when so many Americans were turning to Eastern religions like Zen Buddhism, and as you were describing, your parents were from Japan and were, although they didn't really practice, they were officially Zen Buddhists. Um, so I'm wondering what that period was like for you. There was quite a lot of that, actually. There was a lot of that in America. Uh, to an extent I had ever, I'd never experienced in living in England. And particularly because I was actually, um, uh, I was on the West Coast a lot of the time. You know, uh, I was hitchhiking on Highway 1. Um, and so particularly in California, and I remember places like Berkeley, where where I spent a few 
days, you know. I mean, there seemed to be every kind of variation of some kind of um, uh, guru worship or some kind of method or some kind of alternative quasi-religion being offered. Every few steps as you went down Telegraph Avenue or something, somebody will be waiting to accost you with some leaflets and trying to recruit you to something. So for me, it was quite exciting. Yeah. Um, I learned a lot from that that trip, but but I'd say the other thing I, I actually realized then, perhaps for the first time, was that although there were a lot of people doing what I was doing back then, hitchhiking, you know, with kind of long hair uh, and rucksacks, actually there were two very distinct groups. There were people like me, middle-class kids who were, who were doing this to kind of widen their experience and have a, and broaden their romantic vision of life. And there were people who are already by then, at the age of 19, 20, they were, you know, they were running away from things. Their their world was just collapsing. And, you know, there, there were, you know, there were just people running away from horrible situations. And it took me a while to actually come to terms with this. You know, I I wanted to think that everyone was having a great time like me. When you were on the road during the period when so many people were looking at Eastern religions. Were you seen as somebody who could be closer to that because you were Japanese, your family was from Japan? Um, you know, even though they didn't practice and Buddhism was their official religion, were, were you seen as somebody who could, you know, be more enlightened as, <laughs> as a result? Not especially, but I think if I wanted to play on that, I could, you know. I mean, you know, if, if I just, you know, because you, what happened, what would happen is that, you know, you'd hitchhike into some town, into a city, you know, San Diego, or, you know, into Berkeley or wherever. And very rapidly, you'd learn that there was a place somewhere in that city where a lot of young people were just gathered. And so in the way that I suppose many people are very highly aware of now, you would actually kind of create a sort of persona for yourself. And you just kind of join in and sit down and, and you know, this will be your circle for the next two days or three days. And, and you could experiment with your identity in the way that I guess a lot of people do with social media now. And in that sense, I suppose, kind of being a kind of a long haired Japanese guy with an English accent, with a rucksack and a guitar, kind of, if I wanted to play up that kind of that mystical side, I mean, I could, but I wasn't, I, 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 ne I wasn't a big person for things like Zen and, things like that, you know. When you were on the road creating different, like trying on different personas and trying to figure out who you were, who you wanted to be, what were some of the things that you tried that, you know, you know, that you largely abandoned but maybe kept part of? I was, I was then wanting to be a singer-songwriter. And that's why, cumbersome as it was, I mean, you try hitchhiking with a guitar, you know, an acoustic guitar. It's a really clumsy thing to carry around with. And actually somebody stole it uh, one month into this trip in San Francisco. And I was really relieved, you know. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, uh, but, <laughs> really? but I was trying to be this singer-songwriter. And I, that, you know, I thought I would get discovered, you know, sooner or later while hitchhiking around America. I don't know why I thought that. But, I, but in those days, like a lot of English people, we thought San Francisco was where you know, all these wonderful things happened. Um, and so... Yeah, I, w I wasn't trying to, I, I never tried to pass myself off as some sort of wise Zen kind of figure from, from the East. I, I was trying to pretend that I, you know, I, I was this 
genius, undiscovered singer-songwriter. Um, so, uh, and that was something that I had to let go fairly soon because of, because of the limitations of my abilities. Um, but I think that was actually very important to me um, in, in when, when I took up writing. And many of the things I do still to this day as a writer, as, an, as, a, as a novelist, I think it has its foundations in what I discovered and the, the kind of place that I arrived at as a writer of songs. Can you give us a sense of the kind of songs that you were writing back when your aspiration was to be a singer-songwriter? And if you were willing, and this might be asking too much, if you were willing to sing for <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> uh, no, I mean... Um, okay, I... I was always a pretty competent musician. I still am. You know, I, I can I can play the guitar pretty well, um, uh, and so you know, like like a lot of people, when I was fifteen or so, I was writing these kind of intensely autobiographical songs. You know, real kind of you know intense bedroom kind of angst songs. You know, um, which would which would be sound a little bit like Leonard Cohen or something. But then I went through this kind of. Um, probably the equivalent of what I see a lot of writers when they're starting out doing this. I went through a kind of a period when I was just flexing my technical muscles. Um, and so I went through a kind of purple prose kind of James Joyce period, um, or more like kind of Kerouac Ginsburg period, you know, and by the time I, I, I was finishing my songwriting career, um, which had no material success. Um, I was writing very, very pared down songs. You know, I could play all these chords. I could, I could do all the quite fancy things. I, I decided I'll just bring it right, right down to something very simple and minimal. And I was trying to tell little stories in just a few minutes, which meant that you had to put a lot of the meaning between the lines. As I say, I mean, that, that kind of became my style. And this is why, I mean, to this day, a novel for me is always a certain kind of a first person narrative. It's it's kind of like um, I'm still this um, uh, this guy with an acoustic guitar in a in a kind of a shabby room, darkened room with about thirty people listening to listening to me. That's the kind of atmosphere I always try and create. In church, when you were a, a child, you were uh, the lead choir boy. Uh, do I have the language right? <laughs> um, and so you must have had a, like a, a really good voice then. Did you want to change the kind of voice that you had? I mean, obviously your voice changes when you become, when you start to become a man. Um, but like, was there a sweetness in your voice that you didn't want, you know, that you had when you were a boy in church that you didn't want as a singer songwriter? Did you want to have a more like I've lived, I've lived life kind of voice? Absolutely. Absolutely. No, the, uh, when, before my voice broke, by all accounts, you know, I had this beautiful angelic voice. And so I had a kind of local fame. I would sing solos at the church choir and also at the school choir, you know. Um, and, uh, and people knew me as this, as this little Japanese boy who could, who could, you know, sing these kind of, uh, Christian anthems and uh, you know these things kind of very beautifully the solo passages. When my voice broke, I couldn't sing at all. Um, that that anyway, I can still hold the tune very well, but I mean I think it's also because of what what you said. I was I was trying to 
yeah, sound like Robert Johnson or something. I don't know what I was trying to do. Or sound like Bob Dylan, or sound like Bob Dylan, or something. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, which is absurd, you know. Um, and so, um, but but to this day, um, this business about voice is very important. I mean, you know, when I'm writing, the actual voice of the narrator is very important. And I find I take you know enormous inspiration as a oddly you know as a writer of fiction from listening to singing voices. Um, yeah, so so I love to listen to 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 Stacey Kent, who who I write lyrics for, and many other singers. I mean, there, there's something almost impossible to capture in words about the quality of a singing performance. Kazuo Ishiguro, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you, Terry. It's a great honor to speak to you. Kazuo Ishiguro speaking with Terry Gross last year. His novel Clara and the Sun is now out in paperback. Here's a song he wrote the lyrics to. It's called I Wish I Could Go Traveling Again, sung by Stacy Kent. I wish I could go traveling again. It feels like the summer will never end. And I've had such good offers from several of my friends. I wish I could go traveling again I want to sit in my shade Sipping my latte Beneath the awning of a famous cafe Jet-lagged and with our luggage gone astray I wish I could go traveling a reprimand in a language neither of us understand while we argue about the customs of the land I wish I could go traveling again I want to sit in traffic anxious about our plane while your blase comments with you through the tropical rain I wish I could go traveling again Coming up, I'll review 61st Street, a new drama series premiering Sunday on AMC. This is Fresh Air. This is Fresh Air. I'm TV critic David B. and Cooley. 61st Street, which premieres Sunday on AMC, is a detailed look at the intersection of crime, the police, and the courts. Like David Simon's The Wire, it looks at the underbelly of all those systems, exposing their weaknesses while showing how individual characters try to cope with it all. But showrunner Peter Moffat, who created 61st Street, plays with another formula as well, and it's his own. The events that propel this new drama are similar to the ones that launched his two most acclaimed TV series, HBO's The Night Of and Showtime's Your Honor. In both those shows, as with this one, everything is set in motion by a tragic accident. In this case, a neighborhood track star named Moses Johnson, headed for college on a scholarship, ends up at the wrong place at the wrong time. A cop ends up dead, and Moses is charged with his murder. 
Logan, the cop's partner, is first to arrive on the scene, and his account could exonerate Moses. But his lieutenant, played by Holt McCallany from Netflix's Mindhunter, urges him to change his story. McCallany plays his bad cop role very, very well, like he's an older brother of Michael Chiklis's Vic Mackey from The Shield. This is a moment, Logan. Everything that's been happening in our country, we lost control of the story. Cops across America wake up feeling like we can't do our job. Or worse, we gotta say sorry for wearing the uniform. I'm sorry I'm a cop. But with this, with a brother officer murdered on the street for doing his job. The story swings back our way. On the spectrum of good cop, bad cop, the lieutenant clearly is on the corrupt side. Partly in reaction to police misconduct around this case, longtime community resident Martha Roberts throws her hat into the political ring. Martha is played by Ingenue Ellis, who adds another strong role to her already impressive credits. She's already been excellent in When They See Us, Lovecraft Country, and King Richard. And here she is in 61st Street as Martha, stepping to the podium for the very first time to address a neighborhood audience as a political activist. Her topic? The Chicago Police Department. What do we do with an organization funded by our tax money when it chooses to hurt and kill the people it's paid to protect? What do we do with an organization when its members become criminals, when they become murderers? We stop funding that organization. Now, I want you to hear me when I say this because I want you to know that I am not hiding behind any politician speak. Defund the police. Yes, we have to protect ourselves. We have to serve our community by shutting them down. I've seen the first six of this season's eight episodes. And Ingenue Ellis and Holt McCallany turn in such compelling performances, they could have been the stars of this show. But they're not. The star is yet another wonderful actor, Courtney B. Vance, who plays Martha's husband, Franklin Roberts. He's the attorney who eventually takes on the case of Moses Johnson, the young man charged with murder. Vance also was in Lovecraft Country and starred as Johnny Cochran in the People vs. O.J. Simpson, American Crime Story. In and out of the courtroom, he's at the center here and provides more than enough compassion and empathy to keep you involved and rooting for him. But, and the longer 61st Street goes on, the more problematic this becomes, the obstacles in Franklin's way just keep piling up. The last time a TV character started out with this much stacked against him was when we met Brian Cranston's Walter White at the start of another AMC series, Breaking Bad. Franklin, too, is facing a terminal medical diagnosis. His teen son is autistic, and the murder case he ends up taking after his intended retirement, is full of twists, turns, and unforeseen dangers. His activities, in and out of the court, begin affecting his wife's political aspirations, and vice versa. 
The primary writer on 61st Street this first season is Sarah Beckett, whose most recent credit is the Sci-Fi Network series Resident Alien. That's a much more fanciful series about an outer space alien living on Earth in human form. 61st Street is much more serious, and much more unrelenting. It's also too obvious, with most characters, including that lieutenant and politician, saying precisely what they think and saying it too often, rather than letting anything go unsaid. The acting, I can't fault. But given the lack of subtlety with which this show's messages are being presented, I worry about its conclusion and whether, in the end, 61st Street will ultimately deliver. On Monday's show, Saturday Night Live veteran Molly Shannon. She co-starred in the HBO series The White Lotus, and later this month, she co-stars in a new Showtime comedy series about shopping channel hosts called I Love That For You. Her new memoir begins when she was four, riding in the car with her family when it crashed, killing her mother and her younger sister. Shannon's world was shattered. Hope you can join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our senior producer today is Roberta Sherrod. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support by Joyce Lieberman, Julian Hertzfeld, and Al Banks. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Joel Wolfram. Our producer of digital media is Molly C.B. Nesper. For Terry Gross, I'm David B. and Cooley.